Want exclusive content and a say on Emerging Cricket's direction? Support us on Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, you'll be helping us grow the game outside its traditional centres. To sign up, log on to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash emergingcricket. Today, we chat to Kevin O'Brien, 10 years on from that night in Bangalore. Welcome again to another Emerging Cricket Podcast across the usual listening spots and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Beswick and I'll be joined in a matter of moments by Tim Culler and Nick Skinner as always as we chat to our guest in part one of a two-part special over the next two weeks. For fans of Emerging Cricket, Kevin O'Brien needs a little introduction. On the week of the 10th anniversary of his heroic and match-winning 100 against England, we sat down to discuss his career, the state of the Emerging game and of course, that night in Bangalore and everything that came with it. Enjoy. I'm Claire Polisek, and you're listening to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Well, over the last two years, we've been privileged to chat to some big names in the Emerging game, and this week we chat to yet another colossal figure. Boys, the usual welcome. With over 300 international appearances, our guest this week has played a starring role in moving Ireland's cricket from associate cricket to full membership. Among a host of records, our guest was the 14th man to score a century in all three formats of international cricket, and we speak to him 10 years to the week of his incredible World Cup century against England in Bangalore, which is still the fastest century at a men's World Cup. Kevin O'Brien, what a privilege it is to have you on the show. Thanks, guys. Cheers. First port of call is uh, the location you are in at the moment. Uh, it looks like you've just pulled up for training in your car. Is that the same car that you managed to to hit not so long ago? Yeah, you're right. I have just pulled up to the coldest indoor hall in the world. There's no heating inside. <laughs> um, hence why I'm wearing a hoodie and my jacket. Um, yes, yeah, the same windscreen. That's the one there. I got replaced um, you know, during the summer. Apparently now it's the most uh, searched for a photo of me in, in the world so on Google. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Well, and it got Andrew Leonard to be famous again, you know, or famous, more famous already. So, uh, you know, it, it kept him happy. Uh, Did you keep the ball? That's what I want to know. Uh, no, I think the umpires wanted the back and we <laughs> used it the next over. I think. <laughs> Fair enough. All, all going to keep within the regimented laws of the game. Uh, so you are back at, at training. We know that you guys have just come back from ODI Super League action, but you also had a, a tour to Zimbabwe called off. So you guys are, are training at the moment. Uh, what's the what's the general feel uh, in the group at the at the moment in the national setup? Yeah, so we got back a couple of weeks ago, um, and then we had a, obviously a week's quarantine in our houses and had to had to return two negative tests before we were allowed back into kind of high performance center. So thankfully both tests came back negative for me and I've been back now a few weeks. So there's only four of us here at the moment, myself, Bally, Andrew Balberni, Simi Singh and Barry McCarthy. Most of the other guys, if not all of them are, are over at the Wolves team. The Ireland A team are playing a series against Bangladesh, a four day game and, you know, I think five 50 overs and, and two T20s. So we're a bit depleted here. There's just four players to work with. Yeah, so we've been here for the last couple of weeks. But yeah, as you said, the Zimbabwe series was cancelled. Um, I don't know whether it was due to COVID or due to logistical slash financial reasons. Um, maybe a bit of both. Yeah, so it's disappointing. Not, nothing really to look forward to now until um, our season kicks off here in early June against Holland. So it's a long wait, but, um, you know, what can you do? So I'm guessing that the... When you when you hear that news from from your own board and they're trying to work out things with Zimbabwe and other boards around the world and and trying to piece together the puzzle, I'm I'm assuming it's very difficult 
for them first and foremost, but then you get that news sort of secondary and it becomes even trickier for you guys trying to, to work. And as you said, with, with four players, I suppose you've got a, a decent net session between the four of you. What will you guys be, be doing as that, as that group of four? Yeah, well, under the current regulations and level five lockdown regs, we're only allowed to train a one-on-one with a coach. So um, our coaches are obviously in, you know, for you know a couple of hours a day, and, and we just come in and on our own and, and train one-to-one. So it's a little bit restricted what you can do, but you know, I suppose it's like most pre-seasons, whether it be in a county or elsewhere around the world. You know, we're obviously stuck indoors due to the weather and stuff. So um, there's not really much you can do, but you know work on your game technique technique stuff against the machine or you know against the merlin sling machine or you know if you want to face a bowler he's the bowler's only going to be bowling off maybe five or six yard run up so yeah it's a little bit restricted but you know you just got to get the head down and, and work on one or two aspects that you need to improve on and, you know i've been doing it now for 17 years or so so i kind of know what i need to do in prep for for the season so um yeah it's nothing new to me at this point, you know, being a, a professional cricketer for this long, you said 17 years, how many, you know, bits of your game are left to iron out? I would imagine by this point in your career, you'd, you'd know your game inside out and you would be pretty sure about what you're doing. Yeah, you would think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Cricket, Cricket's funny like that. It never lets you stay on top too long. Exactly. But uh, no, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, pre-Christmas, before Christmas, I actually changed a little couple of things technically in, in my stance and setup and stuff with regards to batting. And then went on tour against Afghanistan UE and, and obviously got no runs. So, you know, it didn't really work out very well. So I've actually kind of stripped it back and I'm kind of now working on, you know, what I was doing in the summer, for example, going back to, you know, how I played, you know, six or seven months ago. So I think as a cricketer, you kind of always need to tinker with little things here and there. But ultimately, you know, the majority part of my game and certainly with batting is is pretty much the same as it was, you know, 10 or 12 or 15 years ago. So it's just kind of tweaking little things here and there. It might be if, you know, head position is slightly different to where it was or your hands might be slightly different to where they were. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it's the, the major, major blocks are, are fairly similar to what they were all those years ago. Are there been any particular changes seeing at the top of the order on the two white ball formats now? Are we, I think when we saw that change, was that the Oman tour that you started but, um, opening before the qualifiers back in 2019? Yes, yeah, 2019, yeah. yeah how, how much of the change has been precipitated by that with you now being at the top of the order rather than coming in a bit later? Because I, I think it was a great move. I think we were all calling for that at the time. Yeah, uh, well, I was calling for it as well for a few years before that, so... Um... <laughs> Yeah, no, I think obviously going up to the top in T20, um, you know, having having some success alongside Sterlow probably did start the, the chats with 40, um, you know, of potentially going up to top in 50 over cricket. Um, I suppose the one thing that I've maybe mistakenly thought is, you know, I've got to change my game completely to bat at the top of the order in, in an ODI as opposed to T20. Whereas ultimately, you know, certainly on reflection from the UAE tour and the Afghanistan series, you know, I've just got to pretty much play the same way as, as I would do in a 2020 game. Although not go gung-ho from quite as early as you would in a T20, but certainly, you know, still have that positive approach and look to take the game to the bowlers in 50 over cricket. So yeah, that's that's probably the, the main thing I've, I've uh, reflected on after the Afghanistan series. So I guess looking back um, more towards the start of your career, you know, your father played for Ireland and, you know, you, you grew up in a time where playing cricket for Ireland was um, uh, well quite unusual, you might say. Uh, how did having that family connection influence you in, into getting into the game and, you know, that family aspect of Irish cricket? You know, we've seen lots of parents and siblings who've played a big part, obviously the O'Briens, the Joyce's, uh, you know, that rolls off the tongue. So, you know, how did how did that family aspect influence both you and, and Irish cricket a bit more generally? 
Yeah, I think, you know, obviously cricket here, it's still a minority sport. So it is played by a lot of families and a lot of the strong clubs here in, in Dublin, especially would be made up, you know, of, you know, there'd be a strong link with three or four different families who would be famous, you know, in the verticomas around the club scene. And my, my own club, Railway Union, was, was was one of those. You know, we've got our family, another family, the Whelan family, which their son Roger played for Ireland back in 2007. Um, you know, we, we've got the Carroll family, which is obviously very famous. Kenny Carroll played cricket in, in and hockey for Ireland. So, yeah, the, the clubs are real. There's a real family feel around around cricket clubs here in Ireland. Um, so it does play a huge bearing on the club. And obviously with dad playing cricket and growing up watching him play, and you know, dad was pretty much a legend around the, the club scene here. And, you know, he's scored over 20,000 runs in club cricket, um, obviously played for Ireland as well. So having him to look up to was was pretty cool. And, you know, watching him play, I, I didn't see him play that much. I was, I was a little bit too young, but my, my older brothers obviously played with dad and, and Nyler got to play with him in senior cricket. So um, that was pretty cool. And obviously seeing them play as well. So I'm the youngest kid of six, uh, five boys and a girl, and we all played cricket um, in the local club. So yeah, you know, it was just anything we played, you know, all sports. We played football, hockey, cricket, you know, tennis. You know, we played pretty much everything growing up. And obviously cricket was kind of, you know, shortlisted for us. But dad was really good. Dad never pushed, you know, never really pushed us into playing cricket. You know, if we wanted to play, like he'd certainly support it. But you know, he wasn't driving us, you know, making us go to cricket training every week or whatnot. So I think having that kind of hands-off approach probably did help, certainly with me being more of a laid-back character than, than Niall, for example, who was constantly down the nets every day of the summer and winter, <laughs> begging for me to go down and throw him some balls in the nets so he could, you know. <laughs> Having got to know him a little bit, I'm, yeah, I'm about zero surprised at that. That that basically completes the, the picture of him. Come on, come on, let's go. Come on, come on. Exactly, and it got to a stage. It got to a stage where I just literally said, "No, I can't. I can't be bothered going down." <laughs> so he used to ask mum. He used to ask mum to give him throwdowns in the garden. <laughs> oh. But yeah, no, obviously having dad playing was a big influence. So when he tells the story on commentary about how he phoned you the night before a particularly large, famous innings and just told you to play your natural game, <laughs> that probably sounds like is that a is that a true story? Who, James? Dad? No, that Niall called you saying that you know yet you were on the phone with him the night before the first T Twenty Century and you weren't sure you weren't hitting it well and, and Niall said just go out there and play your natural game. You know that that's a story oh. he tells on commentary. <laughs> really. Have we just called him out? Here? Maybe, maybe. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, dearie. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry, Niall. We look, hopefully he's listening. Um, <laughs> just, I, I want to pick up on, on you describing cricket as a minority sport. I think to everyone listening to this, you know, we and they they know Ireland now as uh, as a full member of the ICC and sitting at the at, at the top table. So I guess you know you've been playing, you've been there since before 2007. How much has the, the game changed? in that time because if you just describe it still a minority sport yet to get to a point where you're deemed worthy by the ICC to have a full vote and to be funded on a not a similar scale but a similar basis to the rest of the full members <laughs> yeah. talk us through what you've seen that transformation over that time yeah I mean it, as you said you know we're one of the top 12 in terms of in the brackets you know test nations and that type of thing well yeah, I mean unfortunately the, the realistic thing is cricket here will probably always be a minority sport you know you've got the two Gaelic games which take pretty much 85-90% of the media coverage every day even if it's out of season you know you've obviously got the English Premiership on as well which seems like 10 or 11 months of the year as well it never stops um, and obviously that's supported well in Ireland you know and then you've got the rugby scene you've got Leinster one of the best teams in Europe and, and the Irish rugby team are probably ranked 4 or 5 in the world at the moment so you know it's, it's going to struggle to compete in, a, in 
media industry that you know gives 15 pages of sport at the best of times and you know 10 of them go to the, the Gaelic games um, and then the rest has to be squeezed into four or five pages so that's the bare reality of it you know it's unfortunate for us as cricketers it's unfortunate as cricket lovers in Ireland that unfortunately going to be like that but you know things have picked up you know since 2007 since the World Cup win in, in Pakistan against Pakistan sorry the coverage has improved the general public now know that A we play cricket and B that we have a fairly decent side that, that can compete against the world's best teams and C that they know when we're kind of playing and the future tour program is obviously very beneficial for that that Cricket Ireland can get the word out you know we've got X amount of games over the next 12 or 18 months and here they are whereas before certainly before 07 and you know probably in, in between 07 and 11 it was more so oh we have a game in two weeks time against you know Team X come and support kind of thing and everything was a bit rushed um, but now it's thankfully been on the FTP program it's kind of helped a little bit but still a long way to go well, I certainly remember a couple of years ago I was in Ireland for the um, the I Cup game and and also the the well the washout against the West Indies. But there there were you know there were ads on bus stops and that sort of thing. So it was it, was, it is picking up in terms of public mind space. But I'm just thinking historically, you know, there was a time not too long before you were born when cricket was boycotted or banned by the Gaelic games. You know, people who played cricket were not allowed to play Gaelic games, and and that was feeding into a, the perception of it being a you know an English sport. And, and all of the attitude around that sort of thing, you know, how has that um, sort of cultural attitude changed? You know, I, I'm thinking about someone like John Mooney, who's a you know a staunch Irish nationalist, being in the national cricket team. You know, I, I'm just thinking how you go from being a, a quote unquote garrison game to being a you know a, a part of the the modern Ireland. Yeah, it's it's interesting one because you you look you know that attitude is taken with cricket, and then you know you look at football for example, you know. There's the, the attitude towards soccer, for example, is completely different. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was, it was a tricky one growing up, for sure. You know, myself, growing up in, um, obviously, in Sandy Mount, close to the local club. The two schools we went to, the primary school and secondary school that myself and Nyla went to, like, we didn't have a cricket team. Um, and, you know, certainly the secondary school, you, you, you kept it quiet that you played cricket. You know, and I remember uh, Niall tells a good story. He was selected for the Under-19 World Cup in Sri Lanka in the year 2000 and the principal came on over the intercom across the school and said oh congratulations to one of our students who's been selected for the youth world cup cricket world cup uh, well done Niall O'Brien and he says the amount of people turned around to him and they kind of gave him a bit of a stare um but thankfully you know now 20 odd years later you know both both our primary school and secondary school have cricket team um, and it's not really frowned upon it's not frowned upon at all really you know people people's attitudes have changed towards cricket now they now they just see it as a sport that, you know, Irish people play, which is fine. Whether you're a Catholic, Protestant or, you know, you're a Pakistani who's now an Irish national or whatever, you know, if you're living here from all over the world, you know, because we've got so many people in Ireland who play the club game who are not born in Ireland. You know, South Africans, Australians, people from West Indies, people from all over Asia. So I think people have changed. The perception of cricket has changed, and thankfully, because, I mean, we all know it's a great game and, you know, the amount of success that we've had as a team and the, the amount of people that we've made happy who support us, you know, no, it's um, it's thankfully those attitudes have changed with the general public and the majority of the population in Ireland. Do you think the um the multicultural aspect of cricket has been a part of that cultural change? Yeah, I think so. Potentially, you know, a lot of the players playing in the leagues, for example, would be from you know South Asia, you know, who've come over here during the Celtic Tiger and and, and whatnot. They they've come and studied, and they've stayed on, you know, and they've, they've made Ireland their home. And that's great, you know. And Simi Singh, who's currently in the Irish team, you know, he qualified for Ireland uh, 
2015 or 16. So, um, you know, he was born in uh, Mahali, came over as an overseas pro for, you know, four or five years with a, with a, with a club and, and then obviously decided to stay, you know, and he's, he's been a great player for, for the Irish team since he made his debut. So I think we are open to that. And in the past, we've had, you know, Aussies, TJ and, you know, Alex Cusack, Andre Bota from South Africa, you know, the list goes on and they've come over and they've made Ireland their home for amount of time and they've, and they've given back to Irish cricket. Well, a number of those players uh, featured in that national team that won in 2007 against Pakistan and, and again, that win against England in 2011. And I know we're coming up to, to 10 years since that innings in Bangalore, but I do want to talk about the 2007 win first because you were out in the middle there with, with Trent Johnston at the end, rolling Pakistan and then and then getting home. Do you remember what the, the feel was like in, in, in 2007? You know, there was a 16-team tournament, which was great from an associate point of view. It gave you guys an opportunity to perform at the highest level and you guys went out out there you had that tie against Zimbabwe and then you went out and, and beat Pakistan what was the atmosphere in the Caribbean at the time with, with you guys as a, as a group yeah it was absolutely class you know I'd, I'd made my debut probably six months before I made my debut in June 2006 so I didn't have and I've, I've said this before I didn't have much time to, to kind of get dropped from the squad which was great but yeah to experience the World Cup then was unbelievable you know we went over as a squad of 15 players I think I think Owen Morgan was our only real professional. I think Nyler was was in between counties at the time. We had a farmer. Boyd was on the, working on his dad's farm. I was working pulling pints in a nightclub. TJ was a salesman. Kenny Carroll was a postman. You know, so we were just a mis- mismatch of people who, you know, once we played cricket, we were actually quite a good side. And not many, not many teams knew about us beforehand. And I remember we had a tournament in in Kenya before we went to the World Cup between ourselves and the other five associates of Scotland, Kenya, Canada, Bermuda, and Holland. And we lost four out of the five games in Kenya with an absolute stinker. Um, so we kind of went into the tournament as nobody really recognised that we were actually any good. Part of the 15 players and the management and then obviously the thousands of Irish people who came to support us in Kingston. So yeah. Just unbelievable! What like what an amazing place to play cricket. First of all, and as a 22 year old who was just playing for a bit of crack, really, you know, going out and basically experiencing something that will never be experienced before. The the eight weeks there were were unbelievable. You know, grew a love for rum and coke, um, <laughs> and uh, grew a love for Caribbean music, and yeah, it was just unbelievable. So we have to we have to bring up four years later. Uh, it, it's Bangalore. It's March two, two thousand eleven. Uh, you guys take on England. Uh, I'm sure the the bookies would have had you guys well, well outsiders before that. We know obviously the end of the story, but take us back. You know, thinking about waking up that day, knowing you're playing England. Did you guys? I, I suppose similar to two thousand and seven. A lot of those guys you knew a lot about the English team. They might not have known too much about you guys, which almost works to your advantage. The yeah, waking up that morning and thinking, oh, you know, we've got we've got England today. What was what was the game plan? The thoughts, the the feelings that the, the group had before that particular encounter. Yeah, it was it was it was you know it was it was different than the 2007. You kind of feel you know because we'd played in the lead up to 2011. We played some really good cricket you know the last probably 18 months before the World Cup Simo had you know we had a, we had a really settled side everyone kind of knew their role you know Simo had, had drilled as well and we like we were a very very well disciplined team not saying we weren't in 2007 but we were equally but certainly the feel in the camp was was different you know we were going into that World Cup in 2011 expecting to qualify for the quarterfinals and you know people might hear me say that and raise an eyebrow but you know we had a very good team we had a very good batting lineup you know our top four or five were all county cricketers established 
established county cricketers, you know, who, who'd all played county cricket for years and, and had, had been successful. So, um, and we were very confident in, in our ability. And the big thing was we lost to Bangladesh, I think, about four or five days beforehand in Dhaka, a game we should have won chasing 206 or something. Uh, we were 140-odd for four. We were bowled out for 165 or something like that. Um, so we kind of knew we ha- the, the English game was a must-win game if we wanted to qualify for the quarterfinals. And we knew that we had, looking at the fixtures before the tournament started, we knew we had to win one of the first two. But it was most likely we were kind of thinking, oh, we'll, we have a chance of beating Bangladesh. So obviously throwing that game away, really, we knew we had to win the English game if we wanted to stand any chance of, of qualifying for the quarterfinals. So they put up 300 plus. You guys don't get off to the greatest of starts. You come in at, I think it's four for 106 after, it's the 23rd over or something. You lose a wicket not long after. Uh, I'm sure even parts of the Bangalore crowd, as loud as they were, were probably thinking, oh, you know, this is only going one way. Did you kind of walk out there thinking, well, I've got nothing to lose at this point? Or did you honestly say to yourself, look, I can sort of piece together an innings and by the time I get to whatever say the last few overs and i'm not out still at the end of this we actually still a very very good chance of winning this game um i'd be lying if i said yes to your second half i mean we were 111 for five we were pretty much dead in the water um and i remember saying to alex cusack i said listen why don't we just play a few shots i'd rather lose trying to win the game get bowled out for 160 in like 26 overs or 27 overs then you know tap it around for the next 20 overs and lose by 50 runs and, and basically bore the crowd for an hour and a half and bore the people watching on TV bore the people commentating on the game and you know QZ was he's more laid back than me so he just says yeah go on let's go for it and we like, we just took our chances man. We, we I slogged a couple into the standoff Swan you know QZ you know hit a couple here and there and all of a sudden you know I think after a 30 over something, we took the power play, which was unheard of in around that time in international cricket. Because a lot of teams left the, the five over batting power play to probably the last 10 overs, take it at over 40 and try and gain some momentum going into the last five. And, you know, I, I remember saying t- t- to QZ, listen, why don't you just take it now? Just for a bit of crack. <laughs> I think, so I think I think we took it after the after the 30th over or something. And then, you know, I think we scored something like 65 in those five overs. And um yeah, we, we had huge momentum then going into the last 15. I think we needed maybe 105 or 15 overs or something like that. And I had, I, I had a feeling then that if myself or QZ were there towards the end, we'd, we'd win the game. And I remember vividly saying to myself, you know, we need only seven and over. This game is here for ours now. And, and there was a big mental shift then. And, and I suppose that brings a different type of pressure because the first, you know, the first seven or eight overs of my innings, you know, from over 22 to whatever it was, 29 or 30. There was no pressure on me or our QZ. But obviously, once we got closer to the England target and, you know, the crowd, more and more people started coming into the ground the longer the game went on. So obviously, people then started thinking, actually, Ireland have a chance of winning. And, that, and then that brings its own added pressure and its own mental pressure and how to deal with that. I mean, there was, there was a big shift in my innings, both mentally and how I played, probably for the last, for my last 30 or 40 runs. So you're talking about that. Yeah, the the mental shift. You know, I, I'm just wondering. It's it's one of those magic days in in an athlete's career where you know everything just goes well for you and and everything works. So what was was it like a sort of a trance like state where everything was just working for you? Um, you could yeah, you could you could probably say in the zone kind of thing. Mm. I, I I don't know. I, I'm I'm not that deep a thinker of of much things in general. Um, <laughs> so I, I I don't really I don't know if I believe in the zone and that type of thing. I had trained very well in the lead up to the tournament. I was playing some good cricket in the 18 months, 24 months before the tournament. And generally, I'm a fairly confident person anyway. 
and I had, you know, I had thought about doing something in that World Cup. And now I could never imagine doing what I did. But yeah, no, just it, it just seemed to work on the day. Everything I went to hit came somewhere close to the middle of the bat. You know, Andrew Strauss dropped me on whatever it was, 91 or something. Edges went past fielders. You know, QZ's edges went past fielders. John Boy's edges went past fielders. Yeah, so it was just one of those things. You know, everything clicked for us as a team and, and me personally on that day. And thankfully it did. And, you know, we, we got over the line. Uh, the the iconic image of you celebrating with like the arms out wide is just etched into my brain because I haven't told anyone this, but <laughs> for my last year of school, I had this binder, right? That had all my books, my school books, and I had four things inside. It had my school timetable. It had a photo of Kim Kardashian. It had <laughs> Everton celebrating the semi-final penalty shootout win against... United I think in the cup might have been the season before and I had that photo of you with your pink like the pink hair like kind of coming out from the side of of the hat like the celebrations just looked wild there's like a photo of you with I think Niles got his arm around you with a pair of shoes in his left hand I don't know why you've got the stump in the other hand like just go through some of the celebrations because that would have been just wild and it was only halfway through the tournament as well so I'm guessing it was semi-reserved but not really because it's England and I suppose you know just you know, even looking at it from from that point of view, it would have been crazy. What what was what was it like? Well, first of all, I can't believe I made it into your school folder. That's pretty cool. <laughs> that's that, that's going to go on my Twitter bio. <laughs> <laughs> so Daniel Beswick has and uh, the only man to commentate two ODIs in uh, in one day, and uh, Kevin O'Brien will be. In Daniel Beswick's school <laughs> folder. <laughs> I've got to try and find it. Because it was England as well. It's like, you know, the, the, the one degree of separation Australia and Ireland have with England. It's kind of this rare sort of bond. Like an enemy of an enemy is my friend. <laughs> um, but no, getting back to your, your question. Just, yeah, the celebrations were... First of all, I don't know why Niall had the pair of Adidas runners in his hand. He, mu- he must have been looking for an endorsement deal or something. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, yeah, we... It was, it was a strange one because... We got back to the hotel. It was a day-night game, obviously. So we got back to the hotel. We probably had a, a, a beer or two in the change room afterwards. And I think we got back to the hotel maybe, let's say, 1 o'clock at night, half 12, 1 o'clock. And the hotel residence bar had closed. So we were like, what? What's going on here? <laughs> and uh, so luckily, the, the hotel manager put in a, a big esky full of beers and, you know, basically opened up this kind of room beside the reception. And like, basically we just had, uh, well, I don't know if it was free. I don't think the players paid anything, but it was probably on, it was probably on Cricket Ireland's tab. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it was just a free for all, you know, we were, a few of the wives were there and girlfriends and stuff. And my folks came down and, and stuff like that. So yeah, it was just an epic, you know, I, I can't remember what time I finished. Obviously it was 10 years ago anyway, but even if it happened last week, I wouldn't know what time I went to bed. Um, <laughs> And then, yeah, it's like it was, it was fairly reserved. I remember the next day waking up and, and heading over to Porty's room. And obviously being captain, he had like a, a proper suite with like a living area, living room and stuff and a couple of couches. And there was just people, bodies lying across the couches. And he was out in the balcony. He just popped open a bottle of whiskey or something. He was This was like nine o'clock in the morning. Um, I, don't, I, I don't think he'd gone to bed. So he was just sipping away there. You know, I just sat with him there for a while. Golden duck. That's not bad. Jeez. That's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was all right. Well, the thing is, we had to play, we, we had to play Indian in like 48 hours. So I think it was like three days later or something, we played Indian. The media requests after the England game was just absolutely 
just crazy, you know. I think we, Barry Chambers, who you guys might know, he was our media manager at the time. He literally had to just set up a temporary office in, in the hotel um, <laughs> and just, as you know, we just got uh, questions left, right and centre for interviews with, you know, everyone. And, just, and it, was just, it was just crazy. It was, just, it was a crazy 36 hours. And I actually got to a stage where Stimo had to put a media ban on it. After about 36 hours, he said, listen, there's no more interviews because we actually were playing India in, in 36 hours. So we actually need to prepare for that. So Simo kind of put a block on any more questions about the England game after, you know, after a prolonged time. That's incredible. The the images that I just have (laughs) of that is outstanding. Like the Irish equivalent of Sunrise trying to get someone in India to like cross over to them and they're all there like in the wee hours of the morning celebrating. That's just (laughs) phenomenal. But you you do mention Phil Simmons there and the role that he had in in Ireland cricket for a long time. How vital was he in pushing the game forward in in, in Ireland? Because he was there in that that period and I'm sure he left a a lasting legacy as well. Yeah, I mean, Simo was obviously our coach for eight years. So, you know, over over an eight-year span. We were probably the best associate team around. Uh, we were the most consistent and arguably we were probably, you know, I think at one stage we got into the top, we were ranked up in the top eight in 50 over cricket or, or 2020, maybe both. So, you know, yeah, certainly the impact he had on, on us as players, certainly the guys who were based in Ireland, who he dealt majority of the time with, you know, during winters in the indoor hall and, you know, all that type of stuff. So, yeah, you know, I can't speak any higher than Simo. You know, he had a great impact on my career. Um, you know, he he was technically he was a fantastic coach. You know, his his mental knowledge of the game, assessing the opposition, their weaknesses and their strengths, and how to counter them was second to none. So, you know, he he was a he was a great in, uh, believer in you know playing your own natural game. And and for someone like me who you know who likes to play aggressive cricket and likes to take the bowlers on when I when I'm batting, you know, obviously Simo coming from Trinidad and, and the West Indies, you know, that's the way he played the game, um, and, and that's the way he wanted his team to play. And obviously myself and Sterlo being two very aggressive players, and you know, he he liked the way we played cricket and kind of gave us that freedom to to fail, knowing the fact that we'll come good every now and again um you know myself and at the time myself and Sterling wouldn't wouldn't have been the most consistent in the team you know we had Joycey and Nyler and Porty for that but you know Simo knew the fact that if myself and Sterling back for you know an hour in a 50 over game you know we're going to score quickly and take the game to the opposition to come back to to the World Cup uh, and then playing again in 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 2015 we know about that and eventually you guys moving to to full membership and we'll, we'll talk about test cricket in a moment but Everything the ICC giveth with full membership, they taketh with the World Cup and, and the shrinking of teams at the tournament. You know, we only saw 10 teams, of course, in 2019. How disappointing was it to, to hear of that news? And what do you think, look at the, the, the issues that it has caused and, and watching that, that snooze fest that was the 2019 World Cup, how important is, is the World Cup to Ireland and, and other emerging nations in the development of the sport? Because as you said in, in 2007 and 2011, it really helped put the sport on the map for you guys, not only you know for you guys nationally, but just to show Irish cricket to, to the world. Yeah, it, it, it is massive. Um, and it, it was disappointing, you know, to in when the ICC did make that decision in, I think it was 2017 or something, to say that the World Cup would be 10 teams. And ultimately on the flip side, we still had a chance to qualify. We went to Zimbabwe to qualifiers in 2018 and we didn't play good enough cricket to qualify, unfortunately. But yeah, you know, I still think it, it is a massive opportunity for not just Ireland, but, you know, other teams, other countries around the world to have a chance to, you know, express themselves as a team, as individuals, you know, on the world stage at, at a World Cup, you know. and Obviously, we have the T20 World Cup is now 16 teams, although the first eight that, 
the lower ranked eight teams have to play in this preliminary two groupings, which is top two from each. If you call that a World Cup, I don't know. <laughs> you know, the World Cup only really, the, the T20 World Cup only really starts when the big boys come in. And, 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 un, and that's unfortunate. You know, if you look at football, they're looking at expanding their World Cup. You know, hockey are looking at expanding more teams. And I just don't know why the ICC are contracting their tournaments, especially the major tournaments. You know, the, the 50 over World Cup, you know, when I was growing up, that's all I watched. I did there obviously there obviously was no T twenty when I was growing up. You know, and I remember going to the ninety nine World Cup game in Kuntarf between West Indies and Bangladesh as a fourteen or fifteen year old kid went to watch it. It was unbelievable, you know, to to see fifty over cricket up close and personal and, you know, see Brian Lara was playing, Courtney Walsh was playing, some other greats of the game. So it's really important for the smaller nations to to experience, you know, those fifty over tournaments. Um and I know we have T20 and that's great don't get me wrong but you know if you're a smaller nation going to a T20 World Cup you play three games you don't win them you're home after a week it's not the same feeling as you know going to the Caribbean and qualifying from your initial group and staying on for an extra four weeks or going to India in 2011 and playing six or seven group games so you're there for a prolonged period as it was in 2015 in New Zealand and Australia so it's really important that teams get to experience you know World Cups and, and not just the, the token you know, here's a three games at the T20 World Cup. If you don't qualify from the initial group, you go home after a week. It's something that ICC need to look at and try and rectify that because I didn't watch any of the 2019 World Cup just because I didn't have any time with, you know, two kids at home. You just didn't didn't get didn't have time to sit down and watch games for six or seven hours. So to hear you say that it was a bit of a snore fest, you know, that's that's not what World Cup cricket should be about. There should be upsets. There should be good games. And some of the best games in the in the previous World Cup editions were associates v associates are the lower ranked um, test nation against an associate. And that's what people, the general public around the world want to see. They want to see the likes of Ireland or Scotland play Afghanistan. That unbelievable game in, I think it was in uh, Dunedin in 2015 when Afghanistan won by a wicket. Shapur hit the winning runs off his legs, clipped it for four. They're the games people want to see. They don't want to see you know, England get 350 and, you know, India get 340, 320, you know. And they want to see, you know, tight games, 180, the opposition get it for nine or an upset here or there. That's just my own opinion. Yeah, well, actually, funny you should say that. You know, the one of the other close games was uh, the Irish game against the UAE, where uh, you know you you hit a, a very brisk fifty to to get your team over the line. And um, you know, just thinking back to that twenty fifteen World Cup, where you know, Ireland just missed out on run rate, lost out to Pakistan in the last group game, even though Porterfield got a century. It was a case of very close, but just still couldn't quite get over the line. Was that really frustrating, having built so much momentum over the last kind of ten years? Yeah, massively. You know, I think um, that World Cup was a pretty special one for us as well. You know, we obviously started out, we beat West Indies in Nelson fairly convincingly. And as you said, we had the close victory against the UAE in Brisbane, which was which was one of the best World Cup games that I've played in. But I think a lot of a lot of neutrals have said it was just a really good game of cricket as well. You know, two decent sides, very well evenly matched at the time, you know, playing pretty exciting game of cricket where we were, you know, almost dead and buried. And uh, Gary Wilson and Andrew Balberni had a good partnership to get us back in the game. And George Dockle finished it off in the last over. So, yeah, that World Cup also was disappointing, like frustrating, I'd say, from us. You know, we, we won three games. Uh, we beat Zimbabwe as well. So, we like, I think we were sitting top of the table at one stage, three wins from three. Another tense game, that one too, yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, well, I helped with my useless bowling towards the end. Um, <laughs> Blake's taking 100 ODI wickets and he's just calling himself useless. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. This is no place for false modesty. Exactly. <laughs> um, no, but yeah, you know, we were top of the table, I think, on run rate and with three games to go. And you no, know, we were due to play South Africa, India and Pakistan. So we needed to win one of those games, which which on paper seems fairly easy, you know. <laughs> but obviously it came down to the Pakistan game. And, uh, as you said, Purdy got 100, played unbelievably well in Adelaide. And we probably, yeah, we just didn't get enough runs, which is which is frustrating because we, we, we had a really good team. We had a re- very experienced side. Probably anything we lacked probably a bit of pace in our bowling attack to suit the Australian wickets at the time. The Kevin O'Brien uh, right arm over didn't quite do it? No, I was bowling in the 60 mile an hour zones then. I, uh, I, just, I just wasn't uh, I just wasn't really a death bowler at that stage of my career, unfortunately. You've been you've been rolling the arm over recently again, though, haven't you? Uh, reluctantly. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, I, I like bowling, but I just, I don't like the pain it gives my body. And, you know, the next day you wake up and you can barely walk and you can't get out of bed. Um, and that's just me being a, like a gentle, medium paced bowler. Let's be all honest about it in world cricket terms. I can't even think how the quick bowlers, you know, after a day in, in the dirt in a test match, having bowled 25 overs, you know, I don't know how they get up the next day. They must be in serious pain. So we aren't going to see you bowling some little off spinners or some Chris <laughs> Harris's out the back of the hand? To... <laughs> maybe in league cricket over here, maybe we might, might just bowl a few off spinners. I've tried some leg spinners in the in the league games over here, but they've gone filthy and I've got absolute pump. <laughs> they do say sh- gets wickets though. You, you never know. Just <laughs> Yeah, I, I did get a wicket. <laughs> yeah. I got a wicket with it. <laughs> Good old Rowan Mustafa, didn't you? That was, he's a handy bat. Yeah, he's a good player, Rowan. Mm. Get another one of you guys that have been uh, been in a poll. Yeah, he was he was he was the third captain of my of our team in Kathmandu Kings. First game was Sam Pali got injured out for the tournament. I took over. We got hammered by ten wickets, and then uh, Rohan came in and captained the last seven games. <laughs> only time it's the only time I've had three captains in the tournament. Was that a hostile takeover? Or did, you, did you pass it over willingly, or did he just come and take it from you? It sounds like there's a little bit of a grey area between you. You part. <laughs> it's a bit fifty-fifty. I'd say. That's probably best left for off air. <laughs> so did he just turn his hat backward, walk up to you, and go right? I'm I'm doing it now. I'm just and I can imagine him him just running off and doing it because he just is that kind of old lead guys. I'll, I'll do it. But uh... and I was it was to be honest, it was the coach Binod came up to me and said, "Listen, <laughs> Rohan, obviously he's played with a lot of the guys before and in the Pokhara League." And I listen. I mean, I'm pretty laid back, so I just said to Binod, I said, "Listen, mate." Just yeah, whatever, whatever you want. If you want to be a skipper, that's happy days, no drama. So I just continued about playing. While we're here, it's probably worth bringing up just how cricket mad that place is. You know, the crowds at, at the TU ground are incredible, to say the least. And in associate circles, you know, they're, they're unrivaled in terms of their support. What was it like playing in front of that audience? Yeah, it was absolutely unbelievable. It's the main reason why I signed up to play the tournament. Just I'd heard a lot of stories from Barry Chambers, who was a cricket art and media manager. He was over in uh, Kathmandu years ago doing some photography for um, Nepal v USA. And he said there was 20 odd thousand at the match. And so since then, I've just, it's just always appealed to me to go over and play. And obviously, he's been so close to India, they're just cricket mad. So, um, you know, once Amir got, got on to me in 2018 to come over and play, I mean, I jumped at the opportunity just to go over and experience an, another cricket mad country. And you know, like we got, like, there weren't massive crowds like 20,000, but I think at the final, there was something like 15,000 at the final. Probably the games that I played in, there was maybe between eight and 10, eight and 12. Uh, but it's just, you know, as you know yourself, you know, the ground's so small and the atmosphere is is just second to none. You know, they just absolutely love cricket. And they've been starved of cricket, unfortunately, but hopefully now with Nepal getting ODI status in the last couple of years, you know, being a very good team, there might be talk of, you know, teams going over to play there in, in some series very soon. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting one. What's 
going to happen there with you know them not having a cricket association back when these T20 leagues were playing and and now they're being the cricket association Nepal being back it's going to be intriguing to see how that ecosystem will work when you've had these private leagues basically being de facto pathway events really for the national team and to see you know how they leverage that passion you know because you've got a country of almost 30 million people and when cricket's on they go they go cricket mad it's just a matter of I think it was um, Paris wasn't it saying that you know they're all, they're all up and, and cheering but if they lose the next day it's like the game doesn't exist and it's about maintaining that passion in everybody all the time to carry it through but you know when people ask you know if you're interviewing someone who knows a bit about associate cricket it's like well who's going to be the the next big thing or who's going to be the next full member it's like well besides nepal you know there are all the, there are all these other options because you know how many other countries in the world have that kind of support behind the, the country it's amazing so we're talking about sort of packed out crowds there in nepal i remember watching the first test match well first men's test match island against pakistan um i think it's more of a sort of a, a, a retrospective as you look back after the time it had taken to get there and then having the the actual first day washed out you know does that almost sum up the quest uh getting there but um you know historic for you second innings 100 and uh, giving them a tricky chase in the in the fourth innings you just reflect on what playing test cricket felt like after all those years and all those dreams well certainly with the first day getting washed out that certainly probably typifies irish cricket <laughs> anytime we generally have a big game here in dublin or belfast generally the rain interrupts it and <laughs> reduces it to a 20 over slogathon or something like that so it was quite it was quite funny that we we waited so long and then the first day is completely washed out but yeah you know as you mentioned you know to be honest with me for me when obviously as a kid growing up myself and Nyler playing cricket in the in the garden and stuff like we always played test cricket you know very rarely would we play an odi for example you know it was always a two innings test match he was Generally, Australia, you know, he used to bat as Steve Waugh and I was usually England, I was usually Darren Goff. <laughs> like, so we grew up watching Test Cricket on BBC and it's funny that obviously my career kind of went along and, you know, I prioritised white ball cricket and, you know, as much as I enjoy playing like first class cricket and red ball stuff, it doesn't appeal to me as much as white ball cricket and limited over stuff. So, was, I mean, for me, when obviously when the announcement was made in 2017 that, you know, we were the, the next one of the next Test Nations, it was obviously a huge milestone for Cricket Ireland but for me as a player I mean I didn't first of all I didn't know when we would play Test Cricket you know I thought that how many Tests would we have in the next you know four or five years as I was coming to the end of my career so it was still wasn't really on my radar that you know I was going to be a Test Cricketer uh, until obviously Pakistan said they'll come over and play us before they went over to England so yeah once we kind of knew and once I knew when we'd play I, I suppose then I I started to think about it a bit more and you know I suppose you start getting a little bit nervous then of am I good enough to play test cricket they obviously had 10 or 12 years of playing white ball cricket thrown in with a few first class games here and there for Ireland and, and obviously in the interprovincial structure here but you kind of start think, doubting yourself and thinking geez test cricket you know um, am I good enough to be able to compete for five days against the best you know some of the best players in the world you know is my technique good enough just all the little doubts that you know probably every cricketer has at some stage in in, in their career start to come to fruition so um yeah so it, it was it was interesting leading into that test match there was certainly nerves around the camp in the in the days leading up to, to the match at training and stuff like that and um you know i think in a funny way the, the, the first day getting washed out potentially could have helped us a little bit uh, as, as individuals and as players just to kind of get over that fear and the nervousness that potentially was around the group it's hard enough playing test cricket at any level but to play against you know a, a seeming attack 
that Pakistan had on on that deck. I can just think of you know Mohammed Abbas just swinging it around corners, making it really difficult for for everyone involved. It was a, a baptism of fire, and yeah, only being able to draw on you know just a few first class games, whether that be you know I Cup matches or you know other matches like that. I suppose it did help having the game abbreviated to to four days. But singing Ireland's call and all of that, how how special was that doing you know doing all of this in front of your home fans as well? It was very emotional. Um, you know, Andrew White, who was the who is the chairman of selectors, obviously a lot of us have played with him for a long time, myself included. So he gave out the test caps in the huddle beforehand and we did it over beside the kind of corporate tent where a lot of our families were and partners. So that was pretty cool, you know, and it was you know, that was pretty emotional for all of us. You know, there was certainly a tear in, in all of our eyes as as White he was, you know, doling out the the caps and you know saying those few little words to each player and, and that type of thing and you know that, that um that's something that obviously you looked forward to hugely you know in the week leading into the game and as you said seeing an Ireland's call and there was a decent crowd in for the second day you know it was actually a pretty pretty nice day weather wise so um singing Ireland's call pretty much any any international for me is, is pretty cool and pretty emotional you know it's not it's not every day and you know you, you don't do it forever that, that you play for your country so you, you've got to try and kind of cherish every time you, you pull on the jersey really and, and just to give your best shot and, and try and influence the game somehow it's amazing someone who's played for ireland over 300 times say that you know to being so significant in in the course of irish cricketing history that moment of of your first test match and now looking at it in 2021 and we know what the situation has been like but I think we can all probably agree that there hasn't been enough test matches that Ireland have been able to play with the uncertainty of scheduling not being in the World Test Championship and and other parts of international cricket that could do with some addressing from a player's point of view how frustrating is it to only have say one test here or there instead of a you know a proper three test series in in a far-flung corner of the earth yeah, it is. It is. It is frustrating. You know, we've played three tests in since we got you know test status in 2017. Since to, since we made our debut 2018, we've only played three games, and obviously last year was you know was a complete washout of COVID. So you can kind of take one year off. But yeah, it would be it would be lovely to be able to look forward to saying oh like even a two test series you know in August or September or somewhere overseas during the winter time that we can go over and play a couple of tests you know play a few ODIs and you know a few T20s make it a proper a proper tour. You know it it, it is it is frustrating. But you know I suppose on the other side we've we've got to focus are currently you know as a team and, and, I, and I imagine as an organization we've got to focus on white ball cricket for the next three seasons you know with, with two T20 World Cups and a 50 over World Cup coming up so for us well for me you know that's obviously more important at the moment is, is qualifying for those three tournaments um, obviously we've qualified for the October version in India now uh, this year so you know we've got that to look forward to and, and got, got that to prep for and then the following season is in Australia. So that would be a great World Cup to qualify for. Having played there in 2015, the wickets are good to play on. You know, we get good supporters, you know, plenty of Irish people in Australia and New Zealand and like who, who came to our games in 2015. So it'd be great to get back over there for the world, for the T20 next year. While it's in my head, I'm interested to know, with the T20 World Cup postponed last year that was to be held in Australia, you guys had already qualified, obviously, but that tournament moving from Australia to India, the two questions that come to mind are, one, you know, what was that pivot like for you guys as a playing group, knowing that you've got to prepare for a different tournament in a different country? And two, how much do you want the M. Chinnaswamy Stadium to be in 
in your uh, list of fixtures come when that tournament comes around? Yeah, so the answer to the first part, yeah, I mean, I think once once COVID kind of hit, even in March, April, I, I knew that the chance of playing in that World Cup was absolutely zero. You know, obviously Australia had, had taken such a hard line on COVID in terms of, you know, how many people they were letting in and, and that type of thing, which is, which obviously, and as we sit here now, it, you know, probably was the correct thing to do in terms of your numbers are being so low and, you know, we're still in bloody level five lockdown here in Ireland. So um, it wasn't that e- that hard, I should say, sorry, it wasn't that hard to forget about the Australian World Cup and, and then, you know, just kind of refocus for the India one this this year. But um, yeah, I mean, I, su- I suppose it throws up a, you know, a couple of kind of logistical things in terms of for our team, you know, our team might've been different a few different selections potentially you know from the tournament that was in Australia as opposed to a tournament that's going to be in India now in terms of squad makeup and stuff so I suppose that's something the selectors have obviously considered over the last few months and that type of thing but um, in terms of the Chinaswamy yeah it'd be unbelievable to to go back there and have three group games there beforehand you know to to play a few games there would would be pretty cool certainly bring back some memories but you know any ground in India you know it's they're they're all pretty good like, let's be honest. I'd love to play in the one KD. That'd be great. Um, you know, if there was good crowd there, I'm sure that'd be good atmosphere. You know, obviously we've got good memories of Kolkata beating Holland there in 2011 as well. So yeah, listen, any ground. You know, first of all, you've got to stay fit and be on the plane over to the World Cup. That's the first thing. And, you know, obviously, if we can qualify from the initial group, the initial group of four, you know, to get into the World Cup proper in inverted commas would be great as well. That's the end of part one of our two-part special with Kevin O'Brien here at the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to us if you haven't done so already so you can tune in as soon as the show drops every week. Pass the pod around and make sure to give us a five-star review. If you want to support us financially, go to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Emerging Cricket where you can support us from as little as $2 a month. You'll get access to extended cuts of a number of our shows and you'll have a say on the show's direction. For now, on behalf of Nick Skinner, Tim Cutler and myself, Daniel Beswick, see you next week.